Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Sophia Ramos. In this episode, Philip speaks with English teaching professor Michael Gutierrez and Kayla O'Connell, assistant professor of anthropology and the environment, ecology, and energy program. In our conversation, we discuss their current projects, intersections of human response to climate change and increased natural disasters. So Kayla, to start out, could you talk a little bit about your what you do here at UNC and your, your research and, and all that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm new to UNC. Uh, I joined the faculty this semester. I'm split appointment between anthropology and E3P, which is the Environment, Ecology, and Energy program. And my work is all on human-environment relationships and how they change. Um, So with that, I'm interested in how we adopt new practices as people to change our impact on the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, how we make decisions around things that we perceive to be risk or how different groups of people adapt to better understand, better understood risk or better understood impacts on water quality. A lot of my work is in rural areas. I, I do a lot of work with farmers and rural communities and I look at disaster and recovery from disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also look at issues of water quality, how we can reduce erosion or how we can um, limit uh, runoff from yeah. farming systems, but also with recognition that we do need farming systems and we yeah. do need to to have uh, things like fertilizers to put into them. So kind of making what people do on the ground and what our evidence tells us meet in the middle a little bit more okay, effectively. Great. And Michael, can you talk about your current project, what you're working on, and, and what you do in general at UNC? Yeah, I'm a uh, teaching professor here at UNC in the English department. I'm an IH fellow this semester, um, which I'm really thrilled about. And um, I'm writing a novel about a city that is destroyed by climate change. Um, couple of hurricanes, some rising water, and uh, the government is deciding whether or not to rebuild at this point. And the story centers around a family trying to figure their way through this. So how did you get interested in exploring, I'll ask both of you this, how did you get interested in both your fields exploring uh, disasters in the wake of those and how we react to those? Well, for me, uh, it was actually experiencing a disaster. I was a month into my dissertation research, actually, in St. Lucia in the Eastern Caribbean when we got a surprise hurricane, which I didn't know was actually a thing, but it is. Occasionally, uh, you know, a tropical depression will, uh, that instability will form into a hurricane very, very quickly. In this case, less than 24 hours. Mm-hmm. So there weren't the typical warnings or anything like that. And so I experienced that hurricane, and it brought great devastation to St. Lucia, where I was working. I was studying fair trade and sustainability in banana farming at the time. And so I had that kind of firsthand experience, which was extremely scary. And hurricanes are very, very loud. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and it was like one of those once in 1,000 year rainfall events. Oh, and it uh, seemed to be happening more I, than 
1,000 years. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Um, and then, but leading up to it, there was a historic drought. Oh, and wow. that combination proved to be particularly terrible. So then I spent 20 months documenting what happened in St. Lucia mm. to farmers and the recovery process and the fissures that that made more visible in terms of things that weren't going well before the hurricane, but really kind of brought them up to the surface after the hurricane. What um, do you mean by what fissures? Um, so things that maybe aren't apparent day to day, things that are uh, fairly untenable in terms of the economics of banana farming, for example, or uh, uh, conservation practices that are not being well thought out or supported. Mm-hmm. When you have a disaster event, it makes those really, really apparent. Because, for example, in this case, farmers were farming fair trade, which brings in a higher premium, but they were still so close to the margins that they had no cash um, accumulated to help them rebuild after the hurricane. And so it wasn't particularly sustainable. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, I came at this a little bit. I mean, I grew up in Los Angeles in the 80s, so I'm pretty familiar with natural disasters or man-made ones. Uh, But this came to me um, a few years back. It was during that year when Miami and Houston were both decimated by hurricanes in September, October. And I had lived in those two places previously to coming to Chapel Hill. And I saw like my old apartment flooded out and places I used to drive and eat being flooded out. And uh, then Puerto Rico also happened, too, at the same mm-hmm. – um, the next year, I believe. Mm-hmm. No, all 2017. All 2017. Yeah. It, was, it seemed like a lot. So 2017, all of that happened. And I also had a son born that year. My – you know, he was seven, eight months old at this point. I started thinking about the future. And I started thinking about why we're still debating whether or not climate change exists. And one of the things I think art can do is to help an audience imagine something – that they find difficult to imagine. It's hard for people to imagine the world changing in such a fundamental way. We see disaster films like giant tornadoes or sharknadoes, whatever, and you know we can sort of laugh at that, but to see the sort of real world consequences that are gonna happen and to think about how our children are going to live in a very different world than the one we grew up in. Mm-hmm. And the sort of emotional trials that are gonna endure because we have a scarcity of water, because we're having to abandon, you know, large urban places. I mean, we think about New Orleans and Miami as being these places that have been here for hundreds of years. Well, Miami, not that case, but New Orleans has been here for hundreds of years, and I'm not sure it's going to be there when my son is 50, 60 years old. And so we're trying to just reckon with that while also telling a human story is really what I was trying to do. I just wanted to ask, Michael, we'll start with you. What, what are your best moments in writing? My best moments. Or in when does when does it work for you? Or what what are your greatest successes? On the day to day basis. The, yeah, yeah, just yeah. The that, practice that of feeling. It. Yeah. I think when I go back to edit a draft. So mm-hmm. with novelists, you just edit and edit. My first book, I at least edited eight or nine times. Mm-hmm. You know, at one point it was four hundred and seventy pages, and it got published at two hundred and fifty. Oh wow. And the part the part that I like is if I find go back and edit, and I find a paragraph that I don't remember writing. And I'm like, wow, this is really good. Who wrote this? You know, it's just an act of vanity. But most of the time, it's just like, because 99% of the time, it's like, this sounds like a high school student is writing it. Um, but you get those moments, you go back, and you're like, that paragraph is really good. Yeah. Um, in fiction, we say, like, sometimes you have to really look at that part. And it's called killing your darlings. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I tell my students this, too, that um, 
sometimes you don't want to kill your darlings. Sometimes what that indicates is actually you should build the rest of the story around those darlings. And that's one of the things I try to keep in mind is like when you have those darlings, don't immediately chop it out, but really sort of take pleasure in that moment because they don't happen very often. Yeah. Thanks. Kayla? I would say I, I'm also a big fan of the editing process, actually. Yeah. Like I often think uh, that I think of getting that first draft down as – um, you know, kind of mental throw up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I feel like my shoulders can relax a little bit, uh-huh. and then I can actually get to work sculpting mm-hmm. the the story that I want to tell and right. how to present the data that I'm sharing mm-hmm. in, in a way that is um, accessible and compelling. Um, I also uh, I really enjoy um, and find very useful with writing stopping when I'm in the middle of getting something done because mm-hmm. it really helps me pick it back up the next time I get to come to it. Um, and so once I can, it's hard to adjust that flow, but once I get there, then I enjoy all of the writing a lot more. Yeah, yeah I always end the day with a sentence that needs to be completed. Oh, um, wow. As sort of a way to just like, okay, I know I have to write these three words and they're going to get a period at the end and then I can move on Mm. and so not starting with the blank page as much as possible do you write longhand or do you tend to uh, just type everything out like the first draft oh I definitely just type everything out Um, sometimes when I'm editing I'll print something out and work on it uh, with pen on paper but um, if I wrote longhand, I wouldn't even be able to read my own writing to <laughs> type it up. I write the first draft longhand, and sometimes it's difficult. But uh, mm-hmm. I find that getting into that sort of second or third grade experience of just like the tactile f- feeling of putting pen to paper really sort of opens up the imagination. Do you have any issues like your brain going faster than your hand in those moments? or? No, my brain doesn't go that fast, okay. and my hand goes pretty fast. So, okay, okay. Yeah, it's, 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 usually, okay. Speed. it's usually okay. <laughs> you just sort of, like, go along with it. And, uh, it, I mean, maybe it makes you – force you to slow down a little bit. Like, yeah. Like, okay, let's let's work on the sentence and yeah. then keep going. But, uh, yeah, yeah. That, that helps me have a less painful first draft. So for working on this particular novel, have you had to really increase your awareness or knowledge about, like, how – like you were talking about this imagined space, but in a specific community, but what are the challenges of you imagining that space or that community? What would it be like and have it you know, reflect some sort of reality because that's... I think a lot of this hard stuff is learning about infrastructure and this, okay. you know, basically imagining, okay, it's kind of on the precipice of collapse. Mm-hmm. They still have some electricity a few hours a day. They still have water um, for the most part in parts of the city. Uh, there's, you know, I looked at New York City a lot too. Um, okay. So the piping comes up from, comes down from upstate. It's gravity based. So it's not relying upon electricity unless you get above the eighth floor of a building where you then need an electric pump. So thinking about like, okay, how do people maneuver in this world in this way um, and then it's just other stuff like race gender class trying to think about how other people bring different experience to, experiences to this um, and what is going to be valued and what is not going to be valued anymore the one of the main characters is an academic and he uh, his academic skills are pretty useless yeah <laughs> in this point <laughs> scenario like he's yeah. the one who dies in the horror movie 10 minutes in sort of right, guy right, right. but you know he grew up in a place where he had to learn how to cook so he works in a bar cooking food mm-hmm. um, and so those sorts of skills become much more apparent interesting and are you setting it in a fictional city i am um 
I, there are a couple of reasons. One, the writer Edward Jones really convinced me of this. He wrote The Known World, uh, which won the Pulitzer Prize back in 2003. And he had an imagined city or imagined town in Virginia, and it's about slavery. And he said the thing was, if you make up the town like Faulkner did, yeah. nobody can tell you you're wrong. So right. if I had set this in Manhattan, it's just going to be one struggle after another. And I think with also the imagined city is you can universalize it in some way. It doesn't have to be like the other city. It's not Boston or Baltimore or New York. It's, you know, this one place we can start to imagine this world as, be, you know, being our own town, our own city in some way, and uh, trying to universalize it in some way. Yeah. Do you geolocate it somewhat? Is it like an Atlantic coast city? Yeah, it's or? definitely Atlantic coast, uh, closer to the northeast. I mean, it's basically little south of it's like New Jersey is what I kind of imagined it being as but yeah I felt like I mean the Atlantic coast is really where it's going to be awful you know in the Gulf Coast um, even though I'm from Los Angeles I do like to write about the East Coast is there a reason for that like what would be particularly is it just because of the the number of cities that are on that coast or is there particular geography that lends itself to that or well, it, it has to do with... Or the hurricanes that come through. Well, I actually know nothing about the okay. West Coast, I would yeah, say. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's pretty. There's earthquakes. I've been yeah. there a few times. Yeah. There are earthquakes. Um, my impression is that the settlements on the East Coast are cl- much closer oh, to yeah. the physical okay. coastline. Mm-hmm. But that is not a fact-based statement. That's yeah, my yeah, impression. Yeah. Okay. Um, as far as Atlantic hurricanes go we certainly have a a well-defined pattern and season and and many hurricanes that come to both gulf and atlantic coasts Mm -hmm. and i think that tsunamis don't hit the most of the west coast very frequently los angeles i don't think it's ever had one since like the 30s and it was just like a brush off it just doesn't happen but i think there are also more low-lying areas um i mean you go to los angeles like you're up against the mountains pretty quickly um but you go to Miami, and the tide are, is already flooding South Beach or at high like tide. Like New Orleans is underwater sure. already. Yeah. Right. And Tampa as yeah. well. Also, parts of Manhattan and Boston. You know, mm-hmm. Boston's a lot of, um, you know, they filled in a lot of Back Bay. That's oh, where right. it is. So yeah. a lot of that's going to get washed away, too. So, Right. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and, the, I mean, it has to do with part of the ways that humans settled those places to begin uh-huh. with, right? We were very much dependent on boats for transportation, for moving around, the resources that you get with a coastal um, community, even mm-hmm. a early one, food, water, access to mobility. Trade. Trade, visual, being able to visually see who's coming towards you. Oh, yeah, yeah. All of those things okay. benefit wow. settling. Um, and then it's also beautiful <laughs> on right. top of that. So like even now, you have real estate development that really wants to – be in those low-lying coastal areas mm. because there's a lot of focus on what people want right now and not right. thinking about time in that kind of future risk way. I mean, that's one of the reasons I started this project is we're not thinking about the future. We're still building houses out on the coast of North Carolina yeah. and just repaying them and repaying them. And I think one of the things I'm positing in the, the book is that banks and insurance companies are eventually going to say, that's enough. We're not going to give you any more 30-year mortgages. We're not going to give you homeowner's insurance. We're not going to do any of this stuff anymore because it's just not economically feasible. The math will eventually add up to the point where we have to consider moving backwards, moving inland. And um, I don't think we're ready to think about that yet, but Mm, we should. Yeah, yeah. 
I think that it varies a lot from community to community what that ask looks like. It's very different for, for example, a community where you have a lot of vacation homes or second homes or, you know, portfolio uh, diversification homes yeah. um, as opposed to... I don't have one of those, <laughs> as a, Well, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm not necessarily even saying th- yeah. that's a different relationship to that place and you might have family memories there, but that's very different than mm-hmm. families and people and communities that are very much embedded in a coastal community and have been there for multiple generations. And when you ask them to relocate, you're not asking them just to move their home. You're asking them to give up their way of life yeah. and the social networks that they have, the knowledge that they have, their livelihoods. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, it's not easy to resettle an entire community yeah. to a different place. And I mean, you saw a little bit of that. Yeah, after Katrina, a lot of folks ended up in Houston and ended up staying there, but... They weren't yeah. always well, warmly welcomed either. Right, yeah. Um, you start, you're already seeing it in Louis, coastal Louisiana. The islands are just starting to disappear, and so mm-hmm. you're starting to see people having to re- relocate. But then you get into cities with two, 300,000, 500,000 people, and that becomes a refugee crisis. Mm-hmm. And Florida it doesn't look good for Florida, and there's a lot of people still moving there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. This is a question we ask everyone, and I'll start with you, Kayla. What's a book that changed your life? It's hard to choose just one. Um, I will assume. We're always under the assumption that there's several. But yeah. You're just picking one off that, okay, just that pick particular one. shelf. Pick one. From YA literature when I was rather young, um, Island of the Blue Dolphins. Okay. It's a pretty classic, well-known book, but for me it was a, a really uh, impactful one and what way? um in a way because it focuses on a, a female protagonist a young mm-hmm. girl um she and she it's very much about the tension of um colonization and natural resources and um personal and community responsibilities and in some really interesting ways but in you know a fictional yeah. story that is is also very interesting so awesome thank you i got to at least think about it for a second and not on the spot yeah Yeah. Um, (laughs) so the one that first came to mind was v by thomas pynchon okay and thomas pynchon is an expansive writer long sentences all the stuff the opposite of me i'm much more of a spare um concise writer than he is but Mm -hmm. what i it came to me when I was like, 21 or 22, and I was still deciding whether and what kind of writer I wanted to be. I started out wanting to be a journalist because that's what it. There was a job attached to it. It seemed like it was not something like novelist, which seemed like something only rich people could do. Right. Journalist, you know, you had a union, you work fifty thousand, you make fifty grand a year or something like that. Um, but I got out of college right as journalism died oh, in right, 2000. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I, I waited tables for a long time after that, uh-huh. um, and. During that time when I was waiting tables and sort of looking around, I just happened upon this book V by Thomas Pynchon, his first novel. And what struck me about it was that he could do all sorts of things with literature that I hadn't ever encountered before. He could be funny and whimsical and also dire and serious. He could have a character chasing alligators under um, in the sewers of New York while also talking about the struggle and trauma of World War One, mm-hmm. You know, all of these things came together in a way that it made me realize that the books I'd been given or shown in college and high school were 
very limited. Yeah. And that literature could do much more and transfix me, transport me to a different world. All right, awesome. Um, so could you talk a little bit about how you are doing the research and how you're taking such a big topic like recovery from disaster and climate change and embedding that into like the one family's uh, experience. I'm, I'm curious about that. Well, you do a lot of, you know, I looked at Puerto Rico, Houston, other places that have been disasters uh, areas. I've looked at sort of the newspaper writing, letters, diaries. There's a lot of stuff out of Katrina about, you know, people going down there and doing interviews and all that stuff's been really helpful. Um, there's also just learning some of the science behind it, looking at infrastructure, all those sorts of things. But as far as the structure of the book goes, I'm actually using a war book as sort of the model. Um, the book I'm specifically looking at is The Quiet American by Graham Greene, which is about you know French Vietnam in the 50s and the struggles um, that are going on there, along with sort of this quasi-murder mystery in the background as well to drive the plot. And I'm using that sort of model as a way to think about what what do we have that's comparable in our past to what is going to happen in the future? Mm-hmm. And the one thing that came back was these civilizations that are on the precipice of disaster. And it's often about war. And Vietnam seemed like a good place to do that. I also looked at stuff about Weimar, um, Germany in the 20s, Vienna after World War II, these places which are teetering on collapse. And by focusing in on a family and using a plot like The Quiet American, I can get people to imagine something, use the familiar to imagine something unfamiliar. And that's the idea behind it, mm-hmm. that you see a dead body within 10 pages. Okay, I know what kind of story that is. However, there are deer running around the city streets. We're out of gasoline. Um, we're all trying to figure out how to get food. Um, we're all wondering if they're going to build a seawall or if we're going to get recovery, this sort of instability. How do we get antibiotics? Stuff like that. Um, but it's couched in a pretty familiar um, familiar way. And that's sort of the idea behind it. What are some surprising things you experienced in St. Lucia and after that post-disaster? Was there anything that kind of... Um, one of the most surprising things actually was uh, how quickly... So St. Lucia is a primarily rural island but has a very robust tourism industry mm-hmm. on the high end le- level of tourism was really interesting is the dams were damaged um, for months and in the immediacy uh, ships brought water to the island but they brought water for the tourists at the resorts and not for the general population go figure um, <laughs> so that was surprising to me that it wasn't for both it just seemed like yeah. you know and I think a popular refrain is that disaster is an equalizer and I would say it's really not there's no um, evidence of that whatsoever yeah. yeah it's not always however on the other side of that coin it's not as simple to say that the normal categories of marginalized groups, that doesn't also necessarily predict how people experience disaster or disaster recovery. It's a lot more complicated because people are more complicated. Um, Another thing in in my work in Houston following Harvey, which I've Mm -hmm. been studying for the last two years, the recovery from Rockport, which is where uh, Harvey made landfall about 
two and a half hours south of Houston, mm-hmm. all the way up the coast to about an hour east of Houston in Chambers County. Um, one thing that's been very surprising there is that is a, a coastline that people expect to have hurricanes from time to time. They had Ike. Um, there have been others in the past that do a lot of damage, but something that's quite interesting, and it's a combination of, of course, every natural hazard event is different. Um, They don't always lead to disaster. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also, uh, there's been a lot of infrastructural change in the area, and so people who are relying on their past disaster experiences were unable to turn that information into useful information for how to respond to or keep themselves safe during Harvey. Um, and that, I think, was a very big surprise for mm. a lot of people. Okay. Um, we hope and think often that like having some disaster experience makes you more adept. Um, and overall, because the disasters led to very different flooding in different places, it just didn't do that. Wow. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at iah_unc. underscore UNC.